goopy. This gaff tape is old and it's goopy now. Hey folks. Welcome back to the show. This is Overtly Critical. This is season three. Last time we checked. And it's episode three. It is. There's lots of threes going on. So, this uh, this episode we watched The Silence of the Lambs. We did. And I had a thought. We uh, Right before we started rolling, we... um. We introduced Ryan to the song Seabat, which for those on the internet um, who are meme aware, I'm, I don't think I have to explain further. And I was just picturing that scene in the movie with Buffalo Bill dancing, but the music is Seabat. <laughs> this week, correct, indeed, we watched The Silence of the Lambs from 1991, directed by Jonathan Dem. Starring Jodie Foster and the incredible Anthony Hopkins yes. as Hannibal Lecter. Yes. Uh, I guess I can start off with my thoughts because I think you went last week. Um, Silence of the Lambs is uh, it's a well-made investigative thriller, uh, and I think it really reels you in with the performances. And there's really good chemistry between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. Um, I think out of all the movies, I think this is the one where for some reason I just paid attention to the performances the most. Um, it makes It has some really interesting feminist themes, and as we'll probably discuss later, some of that might be controversial, but it yeah. is still pretty well executed. Um, but I really think the best part, and I'll expand on this later, of the film is the cinematography. I really paid attention to how they shot, how it reinforces uh, kind of the, the perspective of the story, um, and how it helps with the performances to immerse you in the story. Yeah, I, uh, I had seen this movie before, um, in high school, we watched it with my video production class, actually on the big screen, which was very impressive. And to me, this is one of the most suspenseful movies I have ever seen. It, it's masterful in how they get you invested in the story with the characters and how you're on the edge of your seat by the final scene of the movie. Even the ending is open and it gets you, you know, wondering what's going to happen next with these characters. I think the name of the game here is very much invisible filmmaking this movie doesn't do a lot of big flashy stylistic things with its lighting or its editing or its sound design even because it doesn't need to it's it wants you fully focused on its characters and its story and it works not to say of course there are times where the camera work and the editing really just elevate the story and not to say that throughout they're just mediocre, it's just they're so well done and so subtle. It's such a well-crafted movie. It really is a feminist movie for better or for ill, yeah. as we'll get into. Um, but yeah, I love this movie. Uh, the I said, I'm like, why did I sound like butthead there? Uh, the huh, huh, huh. Fire! All right, anyway, the, 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 I'm sorry. The, the plot of this movie is simple. Uh, Jodie Foster... Uh, plays Clarice Starling and she's kind of in like an FBI she's in like school to actually be in the FBI she's like training um, but she gets a little off hand assignment they don't even call it an assignment it's like chores or something that they call it and it is talking to Hannibal Lecter and then that spirals into her being able to help find Buffalo Bill who is this, mm -hmm. this uh, killer. A, yes a psychopath who kidnaps and skins women right for nefarious purposes. So we start with kind of like a little bit of a training. It's not really a montage, but it's a little training sequence where uh, Clarice is kind of just running around by herself. Um, and then we get 
her into her environment. So after that, she meets up with somebody. I don't remember who. I think it's like one of her. Um, her her friend. I yeah. don't remember the name. Um, but then she goes back to like the facility, and once she gets there, because at the beginning we it's just like her alone. But once she goes back to the building, uh, you get the sense that she is kind of the odd one out, being I not the only woman, but one of the only women, mm. and. I'm sure you notice this too. There's that really great shot in the elevator oh, where yeah. not only is she just surrounded by the, by men, but they're all wearing like red. They're all wearing a different color than her. And too. they're all significantly taller right. than her. It's a great bit of casting to have Jodie Foster play this character because she, appearance-wise, comes off as like this small, almost timid woman. Yeah. And this is above all really a story about female empowerment because she. She is dominated by well, not she. The men in her life. Let me restart with the sentence. The men in her life very much try to assert themselves over her and control her, and they look down on her, with the exception of Jack Crawford, her boss. Yes. And to an extent, Hannibal Lecter, but he's definitely still kind of misogynistic. And there's a lot of great shots in the movie, like the elevator scene, or later on with the in the morgue with the police, or when she's running with her friend and the guys running opposite to them turn around to stare at her and her friend's ass i mean i did not catch that you didn't see that no i think it's a great shot that's clever um yeah i just think as a general rule i think that really establishes just from from a, a writing perspective too um not just the specifically that she's a woman but like all the, these things about her makes her the odd one out she's smaller than everyone she has a different gender she has a different accent than everybody so like that's what makes an interesting character you know what else is great is we really get to see her struggle yes we th- this is a character that you can never ever make the argument like the mary sue argument about because the opening shot is her training physically going through hardships but we also like see her you know make mistakes like when she's doing that um uh what is it the training where they're going into the room with the fake guns yeah and she fucks up and it's like you're dead starling and at the point she's like struggling with her gun in like the um in the the climax against buffalo bill she gets very afraid at times during like the morgue the uh, the autopsy scene she's like kind of disturbed by this more than other people yeah and i just love that in the character that she is smarter than the men around her, but she hasn't reached her full potential right. yet. She's right. getting to that point. She's not. You can tell she's like not really ever comfortable in any situation, almost because she's she's at times. By the end of the movie, she's more comfortable in her position yeah. as a as an agent, as an investigator, and you know that's that's a good character arc. I think uh, th- this is a really good point that I need to bring up. Similar to another excellent movie we watched, Four Rooms. In the beginning of Four Rooms, remember when Tim Roth was going for his job and the guy retiring said, don't do this, keep your dick in your pants and all that stuff, and then the whole movie's him breaking those rules. <laughs> I can't believe I'm making this correlation. But when she, meets, when she meets up with Crawford, she, he's like, when you talk to Lecter, don't tell him anything personal, don't accept anything from him, and she breaks all of those rules, and mm. that's what drives the plot, basically, is her deciding to say, fuck this. I'm just going to go where this takes me. I see. I, I don't know if it was entirely that. I think also, to an extent, that was Hannibal Lecter yes, completely controlling her. I'll get to and this, let's, too. Let's use that as a jumping off point to talk about Hannibal Lecter. Sure. Who is, I would say, the most iconic part of this movie. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. Anthony Hopkins has gone on to play Hannibal Lecter in at least two other films. 
uh, absolutely career-defining role. And when I first saw this movie, and I, I don't know if I fully still believe this, I saw Hamble Lecter more as a mentor figure than an antagonist, mm-hmm. but he's kind of both. Because throughout the movie, his role is controlling information. Because he knows from the get-go who Buffalo Bill is, how to catch him, where he is. Because he's a genius, he psychoanalyzed Bill. He also had Bill as a patient, so he just knows this. It's more of an information game of he wants to fuck with Clarice, and then later when she offers him the chance to escape and he realizes he can manipulate her, that's when he starts to give more information. Right. And I'll say, by all means, he is an antagonist, but not to Clarice. So that's not how we see him in the film. I like the idea that uh, in, in terms of Clarice sort of going on her, I guess, hero's journey, you can call it, is that he's almost like a script writer in a way. Follow me on this one. Because right away, he finds out her dramatic need in the story. And once he knows that, he can control her. She walks away, and he lets her, like, get abused by all these men on the way out. And then he's like, okay, now come back, because now he sees how desperate she is. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's very much a manipulator. But I like that idea that, like, he's able to analyze people so well. And I think that's, a, that's a really cool about his character. He's not just a cannibal. Yeah. Though he does eat a face. He does. Uh, I or, think at yeah. least one face, maybe two. I think he bites a nose movie. off, at least. Um, oh. He he does treat her with more respect than most of the men in the movie, with the exception of Jack Crawford. But there's also a lot of, like, I think he more uses the misogyny she has been exposed to for her entire life to get under her skin. Yeah. Like how he's, like, um tries to get her to stand comfortable with things about how Miggs talks to her. Or gets her to like think about Jack Crawford in a sexual way. Um, he makes fun of her like poor upbringing. And I think another part of his character and her relationship with Clarice is not just that he is trying to manipulate her. I think he sees her because she's sort of a greenhorn who is who, who doesn't totally know everything about Lecter. He can talk to her in a way that other people won't be open to talk or hear from him. Yeah. Which is why, like, she says that he respects her or, like, he would consider it rude for him to, like, chase Clarice down and kill him when he escapes or kill her when he escapes. Pronoun trouble. I would love to talk about the scenes between Clarice and Lecter, like, when they're talking and we get the center framing on their faces. Absolutely incredible filmmaking and framing in those sections. In that first conversation, the way they shoot it either, no matter how they shoot it, Lecter dominates the frame. Either if it's an over-the-shoulder, his face is, like, bigger than Clarice's, almost. If it's center-framed, he's much bigger in the frame than her. He's, like, expanding out of it with Clarice's contained. There's a billion videos online, I'm sure, that analyze this deeper shot-by-shot, but it's just great filmmaking. This film, more than any other film I've seen in a long time, shoots everything, almost everything POV. And I, I, I think that term is very... Uh, kind of a gray area sometimes because technically over the shoulders can be considered POV in some or perspective in some way um, but you know it's not like the video game bullshit of like well I can't see your hand so it's not POV but uh, the fact that in, in her scenes uh, with Lecter but not even just with him like with Crawford and everybody uh, there are very few over the shoulder conversation scenes in this movie the characters are almost looking directly at the lens or just past the lens and I think especially for um, I mean it puts us in her shoes 
uh, which especially some of the steady cam use too, they do like when she's walking, they'll they'll do a POV of that. But especially when she's talking with Lecter, it makes him more intimidating. Um, and it also makes it more intimate. And that's why with that and the performances, that's why I was uh, sucked into a lot of those scenes with them was because of how they shot it because like his face engulfs the screen and you're like, I can't not face that. There's one shot in particular that I love, which is in the conversation where the title of the movie is kind of explained with the um, the traumatizing experience Clary's had with the lambs at her cousin's house in Wyoming. Lecter is behind bars in the scene, but the dolly slowly pushes in to the point where the bars, which are already almost out of focus, just disappear off the screen. Like he is, he's removing the barrier between him and Clarice and him and the audience because Clarice is our, our sort of audience surrogate character. It's, it's so subtle and just... Mm. I think you're looking too much into it. No, I'm just... Oh, I think you're reading too much into it. It's just a fucking movie. I was going to say this, just because we're on this topic. At first, I thought this might mean something, but then looking at the rest of the film, it might just be a mistake. A lot, in a lot of those scenes, his mouth is perfectly in focus and his eyes are not in focus. There are a lot of focus issues in the film. Yeah, but there, there really are. Me trying to make a stretch of it, I was like, maybe it's trying to draw our attention to what he's saying and not like, but it could have just been a mistake. <laughs> I, d- I don't know. Um. There, there's a couple like smaller details I think we could talk. Oh, you, you pointed out there's at least a couple um, zooms or push in zooms in the movie yes which is unusual because um as most people who are cinephiles know zooms are incredibly uncommon in uh, conventional filmmaking mostly because the human eye doesn't zoom so it kind of creates a surreal perspective i don't have a lot to say on its use in the movie i don't i can't think of any moments where it was really like used impactfully so I just, you know, I don't, unless you have something to say no, more about I mean, it, I don't. I think it's just like, it, it's just a way to super exaggerate something. Like in the in the scene where uh, What's-His-Face was like, oh, where's my pen? And we just get a zoom into his, to Hannibal's eyes and he's like, hmm, I have your pen. I don't know. He fucks up and is the reason Lecter gets to escape, even though, like, it's like he doesn't hold himself to his own rules. Like he makes the mistake of leaving the pen out where Lecter can get it because he goes in Lecter's cell because it's like, you can't hurt me. And then Lecter gets the pen in his mouth, gets like a little like piece, and then he um he escapes. One cute detail that I never noticed until our second watching of the movie. This is the third time now that I've seen it. I think the reason Lecter says mind the drawings in the scene where they're feeding him is to make noise to cover up him escaping from the um, handcuffs. Oh, really? I think that's what it, 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 it it's supposed to be. Um, maybe that's getting a little too much into audio, but I just... And maybe I'm reading too much into that scene, but I think that's why he did it, because those drawings wrong up makes a lot of noise, and he's still very much handcuffed at that time. Uh, maybe it's just to kind of distract the guard, like, visually, but it's it's cool, I thought. That's interesting. Um, I have a couple more, like, um, smaller details, and then I think we know what we should really talk about for a good point of yeah. But <clears throat> let me get into a couple things that I noticed. I really, I noticed this first in the autopsy scene, but then I looked at it a little later. Um, I like how in that scene, the room is like this gross, sick green color, and Clarice is wearing like a very maroon, purplish uh, suit, and everybody, or clothes, or dress, or whatever it is, and everybody else is wearing like 
very muted colors as well. But I noticed that, and I noticed um, in a lot of like the, the the Buffalo Bill scenes in the movie, like when she's out in is it I think it's Illinois or something. Yeah, there's like a lot of the. It's just very. I think it's like also it's fall, but like so there's not leaves, but it's like these very like sick booger green. I, I can't think of a green, better green gray. Yes, dying, diseased, starved colors. Yeah. And I, I like that in that autopsy scene. She she was wearing purple, almost maybe as a way to like. She's out of her element in that scene, sort of. But oh, visually, also draws attention to her as the right. main character. Um, I I totally was not paying attention to color in this movie. Um, I didn't either. Until I I, saw I, that, I do think this movie kind of falls into the visual trap that a lot of films do. Um, a lot of um, kind of more realistic, dark detective thriller type things go where they just make everything look dull and gray. And I I don't I kind of don't love that style. I think that using muted tones at points in a movie creates a great effect. But overall, you know, I want to see some color. Yeah. And you, I, if you're if you're going to make the colors so muted, just shoot the damn thing in black and white. And this movie's not, like, that bad. There's some movies that are incredibly guilty of muting their colors. Um, this isn't that. But I'm glad you, you saw the... Arti- ar- <laughs> Fuck. Two tries. I'm glad you saw the artistic merit to that. Yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting. Um, another little dumb... Oh, my God. This Can't is fucking, such a, I keep tripping over my fucking words. This is such a stupid detail. But in the scene right after that, right after they're looking at the remains of a person, she walks through a museum through the remains of dinosaurs. That's a big brain moment. That's a big brain moment. And I will say, compared, like you said, uh, not that it's as meaningful for the story, but as you had said last week or two weeks ago about the that great uh, flashback scene with Reese with the machines and everything, I thought the cut from the... It was like music. Fuck, I, I'm such an asshole. I wish I knew what those kind of people were called. Like the fucking, like the guys in the museum who were like studying the moth. I, I don't know. I don't Entomologists. Know. Sure. I think. They cut from that scene to Buffalo Bill's like room of moths. Mm-hmm. And I did not notice the cut. There's a lot of great scene transitions in this movie. Like um, there's at least two points where we get into Clarice's memories. Like where it's a camera is dollying past a building. And then it's like an invisible cut to dollying past her childhood house to show her dad. They do it again in the uh, morgue where they're having a funeral yeah, for funeral, yeah. the uh, one of Buffalo Bill's victims, and then Clarice is putting herself in that situation with um, when her dad died. Right. Uh, Which one, is funny, I was going to say, because I almost didn't notice that cut the first time because mm-hmm. it was so well done. That that's what I'm saying. That was what, what I was saying in the intro about invisible filmmaking. Right. As an aside, I just want to say before I forget. I think that with a lot of younger filmmakers and cinephiles and people who are new to it, ourselves included, because, you know, we are just fucking college students who want to make movies someday, and, well, we made one movie that was okay. (laughs) Um, A lot of new filmmakers or amateur filmmakers gravitate to super stylistic things, things that, like, have a clear style to them, like they use POV shots or they shoot wide angle or super telephoto or a lot of moving shots or the color is really something because it's something that we can pay attention to and analyze and realize how they're using that. Mm. This film is on another level of just refinement of the craft of they know exactly how the filmmakers here know exactly how to use every tool in the toolbox and they're using it as much as it needs to be used. It's more subtlety as well. Exactly. It's 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 like a refined elegance to filmmaking. And 
you know, I, I need to pay attention to that more as a as a student of film right well yeah because like you were saying like like it's really easy to look at this movie and be like oh it's it's just a good movie but you know because there might not be things that are so um overtly obvious that's, that's a ton, that's in term in, in terms of style to look at but it's probably just an invisible thing it's just mm. done so well we to uh, to sort of quote ham here it's not just a good movie it's a good movie yeah um last thing i want to talk about before we get into our our, our, I guess we, I could say our problem with this movie is I noticed a lot of symbolism and themes with humans and animals in this movie. Um, not just with, like, Buffalo Bill and the moths, which is, I think, the most obvious one. Or there's also, like, uh, Clarice and the lambs. I was thinking the... Um... The way that just Lecter eats people, yeah. seeing them as meat. Um, Miggs is, like, this animal who, like, throws... Uh, how many movies do you uh, folks at home see with cum in them? This ranks one of two movies I've seen with semen in them. Cum in the eye, the other, too. That's true. The other one being uh, The Green Knight, which I, is a fantastic I movie. I need to make this joke. It's the it's the friggin' Patrice O'Neill joke. I won't go any farther. The pirate. <laughs> Was that Elephant in the Room? Yeah. Yeah, go watch Patrice O'Neill, Elephant in the Room. Uh, maybe not with... Um, easily offended people around but yeah there, there's so much symbolism between humans as predators and prey some humans seeing themselves as a bother other people and seeing them as animals and uh yeah, I, yeah. I don't have some grand statement to say about how the what this movie's trying to say with that it, it, it's just very interesting to me in i guess in that perspective i've never thought about like this um i don't again i keep forgetting his name because i don't care about him um he's the the guy that like Lecter hates. Yeah, the 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 asshole psychiatrist. Yeah, he probably sees Hannibal Lecter as an animal. Oh, he absolutely. Well, he says, "Oh, he's a monster." That's his right, first right, words about was, Ham, Hannibal Lecter. That was a good cut. Um, we also just one thing I forgot to say is Buffalo Bill skins people like they're leather, right, and makes a suit out of them. Spoilers, I guess. I want to go through my notes. You haven't quick, seen the movie quickly before I don't. If I make sure I don't did not look at anything um very very cute shot i say cute because like i i just wrote it down because i'm like god damn it we just saw this in american psycho the freaking the steak on the plate when he when uh lector like uh, it's like yeah it's when he it's when he bites the blood and he throws and the blood hits the steak and it's like well what's the difference between humans and animals but but, but it's it's not steak is it I don't know what it is. It's lamb. Is it actually? Yeah. I didn't notice. Isn't that something? Well, Look anyway, that. how cute is that? I thought I was like, oh, they they did they did the meat and murder thing again, and also this movie uses Courier font for. Uh, for what scene what, what a nice font! That I, is. I really love that. You know what? You know what? I actually thought I tried to make something out of that. I was like, what if they were using Courier because it's like what police files using shit like that. I think that. that's exactly what they're doing. I was like, that's I think okay. that's totally the style they're going for. I was like, okay, well, I can respect it. I think I don't think there's really anything else other than my lesson and, and a bigger All right. uh, perspective on this movie. If I can introduce uh, this section. So I'm going to put a big disclaimer over this part of the movie, or rather this part of the review here. We are two cis men, and we, we are going to talk about trans issues here. We know exactly what we're talking about. So... Right? You know, we're people who, at least I know I've certainly educated myself a fair bit on this issue, but, you know, take anything we say with a grain of salt. Um, I'm sure there's better videos explaining Absolutely, this there are. 
Um, I'm getting a lot of my thoughts on this movie from the content made by other people who I can't think of off the top of my head. So I think ContraPoints is one. Maybe Lindsay Ellis. Fantastic um, media analysts online who talk about these bigger issues. But this movie is very controversial from a trans visibility or trans rights perspective because Buffalo Bill is sort of like the iconic image of the predatory trans woman who is, you know, a burgeoning man pretending to be a woman to hurt them. Um, they kind of, as a cop-out, they write Hamill Lecter saying, oh, he's not really a trans woman. His his, psych- his psychosis or whatever is far more violent. Um, and to their credit, they do bring up the statistic, although I don't know if this is real, but I believe it is, that trans women or trans people are generally mm-hmm far less violent than yeah. cis people but they still made the choice to, to make yeah to put it in so and it's... i don't think this movie is trying to be you know like a turf movie i mean when this came out turfs weren't even really a thing although there's always been um conflict between feminist movement and the trans rights movement but you know it's what is this movie saying about trans people and to me, it almost goes a little too far in some points, like the Buffalo Bill dancing scene, where it's like, I'd fuck me, I'd fuck me hard. And he, like, you know, tucks his fucking penis in his legs and, like, dances. It's it, it's kind of disturbing from the level of it's meant to be disturbing. Mm. And also just this idea that Clarice is, like, from her perspective, it's a feminist movie. She's, like, taking down the fake woman. Right. It's a disturbing read. Yeah, because there was like by the end of the movie, I was like, I, I was thinking about this, and I was like, God, is this a stretch to think this? And then you were like, I, I literally down. opened my notes and pointed. I had a thing that said like turfs and Buffalo Bill during the movie because you were we, we paused for like yeah. ten minutes and you were thinking about this. All all I could think of was like so the so what I was gathering from it is like okay, so the movie's point is that real women are being hurt by trans women, and I was like, oh, I see what they're doing. Yeah, I want to ask you to bring up that shot of like the. The yes. After Buffalo Bill's death in the movie, we get this shot of some paper mache spinning decoration where on one side it's a moth and a butterfly and the other side it's just a butterfly. And to me that's almost like it feels almost on the nose being like he wasn't a real woman. And, and Clarice won and is yeah. still standing. And I don't know enough about like how this is presented in the book the political beliefs of the guy who wrote this. I guess I can just say... It's from the 80s, I, so I, I hate throwing this word around. This is kind of a problematic movie. Not because people shouldn't watch it. Problematic because... I think there's a real debate that should be had about this movie's representation of trans people. I Like I said, I do love this movie. I think it is incredible it is an incredible work of filmmaking and writing and character work and it's absolutely worth watching but much like reading some old like hp lovecraft you kind of have to look through it with the modern perspective of was is this really a fair representation of people what are the political beliefs of the people who made this I don't think anybody that wrote buffalo the person that wrote the buffalo bill character was thinking about it too much it was like oh it's just some crazy trans person Whereas yeah. they, I don't think they expected this kind of conversation because they were like, oh, it's just some fucking nut job trans. Like, that's probably what they thought at the time. Or it probably, they didn't even think about it as like a trans thing and then realized that or as they that were writing too. it. Right. And then tried to backpedal. Right. Pivoting. I feel like I need to say this. 
I don't know, and maybe this, maybe I do get it. I don't know if I really get the lamb story, other than just being an anecdote about her childhood and how the work she does is fulfilling because of her shitty childhood. I don't know if the specifics of the lambs is supposed to have any significance. The only thing I could think of was like at the end there was the screaming girl and it's like the screaming. I just had that thought of okay. the screaming dog. But, um, oh, the, yeah. I, I think it connects to um, Hannibal Lecter's idea of what, like, what is the need? What does a character right. need to do? Like how Buffalo Bill, I love that exchange where he's like, "What does he do?" Or like, uh, he he kills women. No, that is incidental. What does he do? Because he knows he the covets. psychology. Yeah. Um, and how Clarice, her need is to get this screaming to stop. She feels drawn to these these cases, to these situations, to helping people who are abused like animals. Basically, she can't like she she can't she can't sense. not look at it and follow it through. I think it's time to do audio with Dan, and then we will come back and give our lesson for the movie. And welcome to the audio notes with dan hey. just audio no video this is a black screen you on spotify won't know the difference maybe we'll turn video back on who knows you better uh alt tab off of your um uh whatever the hell else you're doing while you're watching this and look at our visuals we be put a lot of time into this set or attentive. maybe it's a black screen you won't know better alt tab anyways dan hello hi that's my intro all right so this movie was definitely scary ah! <laughs> Well, along with the intro to the actual movie, but also it's the same song that plays whenever Clarice is on screen. Mm. Either when she's learning something new or going through, like, possibly her backstory on stuff with Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And I kind of thought that was interesting. And the theme itself is literally just called Clarice, and I think it draws importance towards her character, especially being different than most of the other people who appear in this film. As you motherfuckers kept humming like 10 times as the movie was playing. <laughs> well, it's so good though. I mean, the theme the theme itself is, it, all it is is just light drum beat, clarinet, and mute trombone, which is like the best combo. Hello, clarinet. He never know. fucking, okay, we haven't talked about this yet. He never fucking says, hello, Clarice, ever in the fucking movie. Does he maybe say on the phone call at the end? No. No, he doesn't. He never fucking says that. He says, Good morning. That's what he says in like the scene that everyone fucking. <clears throat> Anyways. So I want to get to the American part of this movie, uh, specifically the senator's daughter, because you know bring politics into this film, senators. Um, now I refer to this more as just happy joyride music until I actually bothered to look up the name of the song, which is American Girl by Tom, Tom Petty, Petty. Yep. who play, which plays during the scene of the senator's daughter driving along the road in the rain. Now, first first thing I notice is that it stands out like hell. It is the bright light in the tunnel of darkness where it's like completely goes against everything else that we've already seen in the film. She's the, I'm going to sing on my way home even though it's raining, and also the character who acts very dumb. <laughs> She's pretty smart the way she kidnaps, like, gets the dog. Okay, well. she That's is, but then I think back to, like, but, we, we need mm. you to stay quiet. We need you to stay quiet. Like, we're going to handle this, but he's not no, dead yet. Dumb, dumb bitch! Primes the audience to see her as, like, this happy-go-lucky, carefree girl, and we know right. the second we see her, oh, fuck. The composer for this 
movie is one of my, probably my single favorite film composer, Howard Shore, who, you know, um, as well as this film, also did The Lord of the Rings. He did The Fly. Nerd. <laughs> um, he loves leitmotifs in his music. He loves creating, like, a simple, like, um, repeating pattern for a character or an idea. And I wanted to, like, to see what you noticed in that. Well, actually, and you bring that up. I mean, I can definitely see that working, especially since I thought it was freaking amazing that Clarice's theme was the exact same every single time mm. she was on screen. Although, it's not identical, but Hannibal Lecter has the same sort of idea going on, especially when he was like thinking of how to escape or definitely doing actions on his own in the like in the prison scene when he's transferred after leaving the previous one. Was that like an airport or some shit that they put him in or I forget where they where they transferred to. I literally have no idea but it's who, somewhere. I, I, I don't know where they It's somewhere. Go. I feel bad not knowing but it was somewhere and their themes are very different but also very similar which kind of and you mentioned this prior but I agree with you on this in the sense of it kind of brings together a whole student teacher kind of mm. connection with them where they're very similar in tone but he's way up here it's also just out of um the, the idea of the leitmotif music was kind of it's generally attributed to um wagner who is the guy who basically created the opera as we know it yeah. where a character shows up and their motif will play um probably the most famous movie that does that is Star Wars. Now that you mention it in like the context you did, why I like Buffalo Bill's entrance into the film so much is that, I mean, aside from the creepy psychopathic killer basement, which is present in a lot of psychopath movies where they have like a layer that's either immensely disgusting or very strange and outsetting, uh, the music he's listening to, I did not catch the name of and I feel bad about, but it's another like, joyride happy it's like pop song. music yeah and yeah. and here's the connection i want to make with that is that i just talked about american girl with the senator's daughter yeah. he's listening to the same kind of music he would as like say the senator's daughter maybe this could be a potential way of applying that kind of music to that style of gender is like maybe more women listen to that it's kind interesting. of music I, I, and I, him I trying think you're right. and him you're trying yeah right and him that. trying to well of course he was already making the the woman suit out of all the skin to transition, pretty good way of putting it in there, especially, well, that, and it also works well, because he's a freaking psychopath, killer. Mm. And you put stuff that doesn't make sense with someone like that, and it makes them even better. Because yep. they're not supposed, they're supposed to be, pop, mi yeah, mind empty, pop, sort of like. Pop songs and swastikas. Yeah, the swastikas <laughs> I didn't really understand, I, I'll be very honest. None of us understand what the swastikas were about. It, it, the swast that seemed, it was so distracting. I don't know if that's something from the book. They shouldn't have put that in the movie. It's just weird. Speaking of um, music that kind of contrasts with the person, you had also said a little, little bit about Hannibal Lecter, as we had also discussed with like A Clockwork Orange. It's, yeah. like, it's, it's like these deranged people also listen to this like, you know, it's like that bull. I don't even know if it's real or bullshit. That like, well, you know, classical music makes you smarter. Where, where, where did, I wonder where that trope <laughs> comes from. That's what I was kind of thinking. I'm about sure this movie had a this and a Clock Warrants had a huge impact on that trope going forward. But it's got to predate these movies. I don't know where it comes you, from. I'm going to read exactly what I wrote down because I think I wrote it down perfectly and how I should describe it. And that is, Hannibal's character works so well with how he delivers his lines. And that's another thing I want to bring up is how well his voice acting is giving him like the voice he had for his character was perfect. 
It's very quirky, intelligent, and fits someone who is always one step ahead. But the association of Bach is the best element of his, both in the, this movie and his other 2001 sequel called Hannibal. Have you seen uh, that movie? Huh? Have you seen that one? Spoiler. Not, yeah, not in a while, but I have seen it in the past. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay, so you kind of came into this with a different context than we did. Yeah, like I knew who Hannibal Lecter was, but I haven't seen this movie before, and I okay. forgot he was in it. Uh, and I'll put it this way. Like, classical music, first off, is almost never used in cinema to show the actual emotion of, like, a scene, uh, but rather for a disassociation between character and scene going back onto, like, the musical stereotype. That classical music is unnatural, aside from, like, maybe, like, a scene where there's, like, rich people. Yeah, that's and what I was like, thinking. Yeah, that imp- like classical music can be associated with rich people, but any other time it, it's It implies like, sophistication, usually. Yeah. Which a lot of serial killers seem to have, considering like they're so right. goddamn you, you smart. Know, it feeds into the idea that Lecter sees himself as above everyone, yeah. not only as like their animals, but also he makes fun of Clarice for being lower class. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll say this one here, and that box music, however, is kind of like a poem. Uh, and even make statements that the listener is supposed to get the poem, like it has a plan and a desired effect, like a machine. Repeating different musical turns stops rising and falling in different pieces, like how a machine would work. The idea works well, but after, say, like, oh, I don't know, eight or so times, it kind of feels like you're trapped in a cage. Like, that's how his, like, that's, like, specifically in his Goldberg variation, number 13, that's how he's like compose the piece where it's the same and that, that melody is the piece that is played when Lecter is in the cage right yes yeah so it's, 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 it's on his little mixtape thing and it repeats and it repeats and it repeats and I mean and it if repeats you, well and you heard him it's like when and it, it repeats <laughs> not to mention the fact that it repeats guys did I start, did I forget to say it repeats <laughs> I think it repeats. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. In specifically in this Goldberg variation, there are pauses on the second beat, which others describe as, say, building a desire to escape every time you hear, like, the note pause out and then start again. And I believe that's why this kind of music was chosen. I'd, um, I'd love to talk about a couple of sound design points in the movie. Um, two main things stuck out to me. I'd love to hear, I'm sure, a lot more did to you. The drawer when Hannibal and Clarice are communicating in the asylum or wherever it is, is so freaking loud. And I love it because it it adds such significance to them trading information. It's that physicality of it where it's scraping and it echoes and reverberates. It's great. The metal slidey door, like door in the, yeah, the way the I love that. The, um, unless there's something to add directly to that sound bite, sound point, uh, the other thing that stuck out to me is in the autopsy scene where they're reaching into her mouth, the dead girl. Oh man, I was so wigged <laughs> out by the sound design. They were like the clicking of the, and like the sounding of like it against the teeth or whatever, yeah. and just the oh, when the thing is removed and the air escape. Oh man, I mean, the so scene, good. Yeah, and but the disgusting. scene. The scene's supposed to be disgusting, and I think key elements like that are what make it that. I can I I kind of imagine it as like like watch the scene again. But like with the volume muted, and then it's like not as bad. It, the and, audio pushes it over the edge. And yeah, and like I think gross factor. And I think yeah. that's something that I consider, especially for post production, which is what I want to try and work with in the future. Uh, it's like, what would I want to do to try and make something sound great? Is that I take the clip and just mute it, or like whatever was recorded and just get rid of the sound. I rewatch it, and it's like, okay, well clearly there's a 
like there are metal tweezers. Let's add some like small mm -hmm. metal tweezer clinking, and then oh well, there's a yeah. bug cocoon or what was it called? Like a, a chrysalis. Oh yeah, yeah. a chrysalis. Uh, and a uh, bug chrysalis is pulled out of her mouth. It's like, well, what would a bug chrysalis sound like? Maybe like some leaves crinkling or something could very well fit in. It's like. They don't, sh they don't show the body a whole lot. You know, you can hide visuals, but you can't hide sound. I assume you made a, you made a note about the little... Oh, yes, I did. Let me get to that now, right yeah. now. Was that the house of one of the victims that of was Buffalo Bill? the first victim. Yeah. Okay. Not only does Clarice opening the music box secret hatch bend, like, the arm of the little spinning ballerina, it distorts the music completely like just for that moment. The, she, she looks into this... Um, this dead woman's secret life. Right. Well, do you have anything else to add, Ryan, to our, uh, <clears throat> our audio section? Wow, I, I can't talk. Among the things that I think make Clarice an interesting character is her accent, because I think that is one of, you know, her looks is one thing, but I think her voice is honestly the, the most unique thing about her in the movie, and I think that makes her the most unique in the film, and it is something that Hannibal notices about her, and then therefore makes all these assumptions about her based off of how she it is, sounds. It is more of like a southern accent, isn't it? All right, well, that was something. This movie sure was pretty scary, and I definitely listened to it a lot. Um, now, I gotta consolidate my thoughts and get ready for whatever next movie is gonna be coming up, and hopefully I'll have more ice cream by then. All right, bye. We're back from the audio section, and we should talk about what we learned. So. My lesson from this movie. Something I really thought about this time watching the movie, the second time we watched it, my third viewing in my life, is how the, this movie makes its suspense work. And to me, the number one thing it does is that we get to see Buffalo Bill's perspective. So I guess as a lesson, I, I would say creating suspense by showing your villain. And this is a movie a lot of, this is a, not a movie, this is a thing a lot of movies do. Sort of this idea of like, meanwhile, back on the farm. We, after we get this, like the discussion about the moths, we see the moths, we see Bill, um, you know, trying to give the lotion to um, Catherine, the girl. We see him like watching her with the night vision goggles. Um, in the final confrontation, we actually see through his eyes. And basically what that's doing in a sort of very classic Hitchcockian suspense um, way is we get to see the bomb under the table or there's even a shot where we get to see Buffalo Bill's gun where Clarice doesn't see it. On the by stove giving, or whatever. You create suspense in a movie by giving the audience more information than the characters so that we're like screaming at them saying, what are you doing? Don't go in there. Don't, don't press that button. You don't know what it's going to do. And that is... A great way you can it is I'm, I'm repeating myself a lot it's a great way you can make suspense but I, I want to think about this movie as what if we didn't have that what if we entirely saw the movie through the eyes of Clarice not even just not seeing it through Bill but not seeing it through Hannibal Lecter's eyes at some point like not getting to see the scenes with him and the doctor or where he gets the piece of the pen out of his mouth yeah. where we're worried about those guards that's the most tense scene in the movie for me um, yeah, that, that kind of sums up my thoughts. My lesson, and I found his name so I could say it, is the just POV cinematography. I was really paying attention to how this was shot, and it was shot by Tak Fujimoto, who I don't, I, I don't, not very well versed in cinematographers, but, um, 
I like that most of this film, well, again, I'm saying a lot of what I said earlier, almost every dialogue scene was done in this, you know, one person in the frame at a time perspective. Um, there's very few over-the-shoulder shots. Um, and like I said, I think in some scenes, especially from Clarice's perspective, it really enhances how intimidating and even sometimes scary Hannibal Lecter is, or it enhances his presence. Like the first time we're getting that steady cam POV and she's walking to his cell for the first time, he's just standing there looking at her. It's almost like you're in like a haunted house and he's looking at you. And I feel like a lot of this movie, it feels like Anthony Hopkins is almost performing to you as the audience and he's talking to you and it really, uh, it just makes the performance better, I think. Um, I, I love a detail about that scene where he has glass, so it looks like there's nothing between him and uh, the yeah. audience. It's a great detail. And this is kind of separate because it's, but it's also cinematography based. I liked a lot of the use of Steadicam. I mean, the reason Steadicam was used here is because, you know, at this time it was becoming a lot more common, so why the fuck not use it? But I think it worked really well in a lot of scenes for simply the motivation that Clarice is always on the move. She's always going, she's traveling to different states. She's always going somewhere. She's moving to states back and forth. And I like that the Steadicam kind of, uh, it's very free-flowing, kind of like her journey in the film. I don't know if that's a huge stretch. I just thought it was a nice use of, of the, the... I don't think that's a stretch at all. I think that's a very good read of the, uh, of the cinematography. That's a great yeah. lesson. It's time to hear uh, another perspective of Silence of the Lambs. More educated, more professional, and um, way more serious. Take it away, Joey. Hey guys, welcome to Funny Notes. Um, Gregory's not here today because we are currently social distancing because we got a little sick. If I said anything else, I do not want to get hunted down. So the title of this beautiful, elegant movie is called uh, Two in a Row Vegas Studio. MGM, or however oh. you say it, Myro Golden May Mayor. They have a little... Um, a little Vegas casino gambling studio in Vegas. So, uh, and the last one, Terminator, was also made by MGM. So, intense to morning jog. The meme with the black guys and the white girl. <laughs> Wait, no, whoa, 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 whoa. The man whore does his <laughs> shot. <laughs> Bury your cars like the U.S. presidents. Uh-oh, dumb alert, dumb alert. There's a blonde, that's a dumb alert. Uh, pussy punches. <laughs> what? Uh, the cocaine masks the smell of death. The dead body looked like the girl from the ring. Seven days. Oral fixation. High school gym, but the loser is caged. <laughs> Are you the wimp? You're getting fing put in the cage. Long live America's Christianity. Free facial? <laughs> Anyone got a free facial? Wait, wait. No, no. C and also the balls? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and finally, the self centered cake. Why do we need to put a big FBI logo over your cake? <laughs> you self-centered prick. All right, guys, this has been Funny Notes. Tune in next time where it's a complete 180 when I'm fine and everyone else is sick. 
we've decided to continue our theme, apparently, of movies where a lot of people die or murder other people. So and sort of another feminist movie. <laughs> yes, um, although in a, in a way, this this one you could probably say is more uh, related to American Psycho in some ways. Funny enough, but. Um, yeah, if you watch the American Psycho episode, which you should do right now, watch all 40 minutes, you'll probably find out what our next movie is. So Yeah, v- very <laughs> Halloween-themed film. Yes, that was on purpose. Um, and it's a movie I've been wanting to see for a while, considered a classic of the horror genre. That doesn't give it away too much. And also low-budget filmmaking. So what did you guys think of Silence of the Lambs? Do you think that it's, you know, a great movie? How does the How did the politics hold up? You know, like and subscribe if you haven't. Stay tuned. We upload these every other week Yep. with shorts as well. Give those a watch. And bye-bye. See you next time.